I used to be known for my puns. I was the I was the king of dad jokes. I was I was known for anytime someone said, "Oh my gosh," I would say, "You have a gosh." I've always wanted to know what one of those looked like. That's so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Welcome to Absolute Genius, a new podcast series from Thermal Fisher Scientific. I'm Jordan Ruggieri. And I'm Cassie McCreary. And today we're taking a deep dive into the world of microbial ecology with two geniuses, Dr. Brandy Keel-Reese and Lydia Hayes. Brandy is a senior marine scientist at the Dauphin Island Sea Lab and an associate professor of marine sciences at the University of South Alabama. Her work explores the microorganisms that survive and thrive in extreme environments like the deep ocean. Lydia is a PhD student at the University of South Alabama and works closely with Brandy on several amazing projects. So grab your headphones, a roll of duct tape, a toilet brush, and a cool refreshment as we MacGyver our way through this fascinating conversation. The toilet brush comes in handy, we promise. My name is Brandy Kilreese, and I'm a geomicrobiologist, uh, which just means that I study microbes and microbiology in an earth setting and in this case things that live in the bottom of the ocean things that live in the crust uh, below the the sediment uh, of the ocean and uh, that includes microbes like bacteria archaea and even fungi hi hi i'm lydia and i am a geomicrobiologist in training <laughs> i am a phd student here at the university of south alabama and i am interested in microbial life in extreme environments, what they do, how they survive, and how they interact in the environment. Amazing. I have to say, too, that I know you're looking at uh, the Mariana Trench and, and some of the mud volcanoes there and, and also had some expeditions to, uh, to Antarctica. But we'll talk about some of that as we go through as well. What questions generally are you trying to answer as you study these microbes? We have a lot of different research questions that we're addressing, but overall, when we look at an extreme environment like the Mariana or Antarctica, we're looking at what kind of organisms live there, what they're doing, and how they're able to survive in those extreme conditions. It, just in general, we want to understand uh, survivability on this planet and single cells use uh, unique genetics to survive. And so uh, we want to look at it from a genetic standpoint, but we also don't want to leave out those that we can grow in the lab as well. So uh, we use culture-independent and culture-dependent approaches. With such tough conditions, there must be ways that these organisms kind of adapt and, 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 and compete with other organisms that are there, maybe low biomass, uh, low oxygen. Uh, is, is this the case? Do you, do you see these with these organisms? Well, exactly. Each each uh, site is unique in terms of what is considered extreme. Extreme can be, you know, low oxygen or no oxygen, or extreme can mean, you know, high pressures. It also can mean high or low temperatures. It can also mean nutrients, right? So uh, the lack of carbon, the lack of nitrogen, the lack of, you know, other, you know, micronutrients that are needed for survival. And what we're trying to understand is, you know, some of those, uh, responses to survivability. To anthropomorphize a microbe or give it a human characteristic, uh, we can think about this as a game of survivor in which you have microbes that can adapt or evolve to in response to their environment. In other words, 
uh, can use the nutrients that are available or use you know, the environment that's, uh, that's available and can thrive in that situation. Uh, other microbes can't. And so those that can evolve or that can adapt will, will survive and, and will even thrive. Another choice, if you will, or another option is uh, that they can just go dormant. They can go be inactive or it can actually, um, you know, build a spore, you know, uh, create a spore around that cell. So then they just uh, shut down to just the most basic genes or most basic needs uh, that are um, keeping that organism uh, alive. These are kind of like zombie organisms just hanging on uh, there in some sort of uh, purgatory. And then the third you know, choice, if you will, it's to create uh, secondary metabolites that can disable or even lice, meaning kill your neighbor. Uh, so you can, um, at that point, use your neighbor for its necromass. It's a little bit like cannibalism. Uh, where one cell is eating another cell, but they're very you know different um, species, uh, if you will. Through the th production of these secondary metabolites, which are antibiotics, uh, they can um, consume their neighbor and uh, or even at least uh, disarm their neighbor uh, so that they are no longer a competition. That is incredible. I mean, you, you did mention a little bit of, you know, you, they don't know if they're alive. They don't know if they're dead. Um, I can just imagine that 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 can actually cause a lot of issues when studying these organisms. I, you, you don't actually or may have trouble figuring out which ones are doing a better job at living if you have trouble identifying in the first place if they're alive or dead. Is that something that you also run into regularly? Yeah, absolutely. So bacterial cells and archaeal cells, uh, for that matter, um, really exist on a continuum. Live and dead isn't as clear cut as it is in our eukaryotic world. A cell can exist in various forms of damaged states and even in um, dormant states. So we use several different context clues to try to, to suss this out. DNA is only one of those, and DNA is like your library. We're not reading everything all at once, all at the same time. We just know that it, it's contained uh, in there, that information. And uh, if we take out a book and we open up a page, you know, that's like our RNA that's being expressed. Uh, so we can uh, start expressing those genes. And we know that if an organism is alive, that it's uh, expressing genes. So it's reading the book. If it is dormant or if it's uh, dead, the books are put away. The information is still there, but it's not being read actively. Other levels of activity include, you know, proteins or proteomics or um, even metabolomics, in which we're going to go ahead and start reading the page. And uh, so reading the page and, you know, uh, garnering that information, that's like proteomics. Then when we start, maybe we're writing down and we're going to copy every word of that page, and then we'll have a copy, that's our metabolomics. So we go through these different processes to try to understand not only, you know, who is there, that's the DNA, what are they doing? And then uh, also, uh, what actually happened, you know, and that's our, our proteins and our metabolome. Putting all those pieces of information together, we can try to help uh, help us understand the microbes' uh, survivability. Are there complications looking at all of these different, you know, if you're looking at DNA, you're looking at, at transcripts with, with RNA, you're looking at the, at the uh, uh, proteins as well. Are, are there complications with going down, drilling in the soil, bringing samples back up, and then having good sample to to study from? Yeah, contamination is definitely an issue. Also, preservation of samples. We're taking them from 
so far below the seafloor. When they come up, you have to process them as quickly as possible to get them preserved before uh, you can actually be done with that sample for the time being before it gets back to the lab to be processed. Um, so we store everything for DNA and RNA extractions and analysis in a minus 80 freezer on board, usually on the ship. And you want to get that processed as soon as possible because RNA and DNA does degrade fairly quickly. And also, you want to know that the activity in your sample is being preserved at the state when it was collected, rather than having those organisms continue to acclimate to their new environment. If you're taking a sample from really um, high pressure and you're bringing it up, you want to preserve it as fast as possible before those cells could either lice due to um, less pressure or activity could continue and it might not be the same as it was when you collected it. Contamination is also a large issue when we're dealing with our samples um, because you want to know that the RNA and the DNA that you're collecting from your sample is from that environment and that it's not from ambient sources around you. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, especially with the with the Mariana samples, I mean, you're, you're going so far down, you have to bring that sediment up through all of the different uh, levels of the ocean there. So I can imagine the difficulty of trying to eliminate some of the contamination that's coming from just bringing the sample up out of the ocean. The nice thing about uh, what we were doing at the Mariana, of course, using remotely operated vehicle Jason. Oh, didn't even think about that. That's amazing. Yeah. So they're able to um, you have your eyes and hands, I don't know, like a drone, an underwater type drone. And so they filtered a lot of water on the seafloor. Um, in order to collect these samples, uh, we used what we call a cork, a circulation obviation retrofit kit. And this is a subsea floor observatory. It extends hundreds of meters below the seafloor uh, into the basement in which there are uh, tubes, like a straw, like a sipper that uh, extends all the way down into the basement, comes up onto the seafloor. Uh, there's an ROV platform and uh, just starts, you know, hooking up uh, to those, uh, you know, to that end of that straw, if you will, and then filters on the seafloor. And then all you're bringing up is that filter itself uh, that is then, you know, uh, closed off. That's uh, that's incredible. I had I falsely in my head I had this this vision of Lydia just standing on this you know two mile long drill on a boat and trying to go all the way all the way down <laughs> uh, to to get that. But that's um, that's incredible. Another question: If we're looking at things that are so deep down, so far away, you know why why should we care about these microbes? So microbes are the most diverse entity on our planet, uh, most diverse organism on our planet uh, that are responsible for recycling Earth's nutrients, uh, recycling Earth's carbon. Without microbes, uh, you know, we wouldn't have uh, air to breathe. Uh, we wouldn't have food. You know, our food is digested uh, by microbes. I mean, honestly, they touch every aspect of our lives in trying to understand not only uh, how life uh, has evolved on our own planet, we can also begin to understand what life might look like on other planets, both past life and also life that might uh, exist currently. Definitely is important from an esoteric standpoint, but also from a practical standpoint of 
you know, what is recycled uh, among our nutrients, also how harmful things are uh, mitigated through bacterial respiration, bacterial uh, activity. That's what we call bioremediation. And also from a basic standpoint, uh, you know, what kind of understanding survivability of microbes in extreme environments has given us things like, uh, you know, the opportunity to seek out new natural products and antimicrobials or antibacterials. Yeah, why are microbes important? They are also one of the largest biomass categories on the planet. So they're definitely significant. They're very diverse, uh, like Brandy said. And understanding microbes really helps us understand how life is recycled, understanding how the limits of life exist. When we look at these microbes in these extreme environments and how they adapt to survive um, or how they are there at all can really give us insights onto how life formed here on Earth and potentially how we might find it in other places. We also get to understand new resources, potentially new mi antimicrobials um, that we haven't gotten resistance to yet, which is definitely important for the human aspect of things. Are there any potential climate impact uh, impacts to your, your studies that you're conducting as well? Yeah, definitely. Microbial communities um, play a large role in nutrient cycling or biogeochemical cycling, whether that's carbon, nitrogen, um, sulfur, all of these types of elements need to be recycled. And carbon cycling plays a huge role in what we think of as climate change. Um, and so how CO2 is produced or um, sequestered through microbial respiration or um, biomass uh, definitely plays a large role in climate change. So what, what methods are, are you using to run some of the genetic analysis? Do, do you do sequencing? Are you using you know, qPCR, dPCR? What kind of methods are you employing? We do a combination of all of those um, from whole sequencing approaches, you know, um, uh, shotgun sequencing, if you will, next generation sequencing. From there, if we want to look at specific genes or specific transcripts uh, of interest that might be associated with a particular metabolism or a, a secondary metabolite, something like that, then we'll go into it further with quantitative PCR or digital PCR. And then also we take, you know, uh, some of those and we try to grow them up in the lab. But of course, we know that you can't grow everything in the lab. Uh, we can't replicate the environment exactly. And, uh, you, you know, you do the best you can, but uh, you're lucky if you get just a few percentage of what's in the environment, you know, growing within your lab. So, yes, we take, uh, you know, sequencing um, both the, the DNA through metagenomics, the RNA through metatranscriptomics. The quantitative PCR allows us to quantify, you know, how active a gene might be, maybe through looking at its gene expression, uh, doing qPCR on, you know, on the on the transcripts themselves. And we often run into the problem of that we have such low biomass environment that we have to look at it a little bit more specifically. The qPCR is a great tool if you have a thousand to a million copies already then it's it's uh it's great it's in its sweet spot but if you only if you're starting out with only a thousand cells uh, per gram of sediment then you're only going to have you know maybe tens of copies or just single copies 
of that particular gene or transcript. So that's where digital PCR is much more useful. And we're able to use that to uh, get very low detection. And that technology has enabled us to uh, go further within the analyses. That's excellent. We we love digital PCR here at, uh, at Absolute Genius. So it's great to hear that um, you're able to employ it and, and looking at some of those really rare targets. Do you use digital PCR in particular to you? So, so you do you look at particular genes? Or are you trying to quantify genes of interest, or or exactly how do you kind of employ that in terms of uh, the primers and probes that you're developing and and um, you know things of that nature? From project to project, kind of varies uh, how we use digital PCR. Um, but from my perspective as a researcher, I'm really interested in specific nutrient cycling pathways. In the low biomass environment, you won't have very many transcripts of particular genes if you only have one cell. We would use digital PCR to follow a particular gene transcript pathway for nitrogen cycling or sulfur cycling and look at those specific genes. Being a scientist has its perks. The Thermo Fisher Scientific Aspire Member Program is our way of supporting your commitment to science. Our award-winning Aspire Member Program is for customers at all stages of their careers. You help advance scientific research with Thermo Fisher Scientific products, so we designed a rewards program to show our appreciation of you. Get rewarded for your contributions, because being a scientist is not just a job, it's a lifestyle. Getting started is as easy as creating an account, earning points on eligible products, participating in activities for bonus points, and receiving rewards. That's right. Redeem points for really cool, science-inspired rewards, accelerate your career with virtual trainings, and try free products for experimentation. Visit thermofisher.com aspire to learn more today. Let's get back to our conversation. Welcome to Cassie's Career Corner. Laser beam noises, confetti cannons, party horn. Anyway, I digress. So we've talked a little bit about these like these expeditions and everything. And what is the day-to-day like when you're on these these trips? The neat thing is that, you know, we can go out for, you know, two months um, at a time or, you know, uh, give or take, you know, a couple of weeks here and there. And you can collect all your samples at once and, uh, and then get back in the lab and, you know, work on them for the rest of the year. So uh, that's the benefit, but that's also the drawback too, is that you only have two months to collect all your samples at once. And then you've got the rest of the year to work it on them back in the lab. Uh, and that if anything goes wrong, you know, while you're out at sea, weather doesn't cooperate, mechanical failures, that's your one chance. So you have to be a little bit of MacGyver. And then, you know, at the same time, be, be very flexible, you know, flexible with your environment, flexible with your colleagues. It's a fun experience. Uh, I, you know, I will admit that uh, it's a lot of hard work. Uh, you don't have breaks. You're essentially on mentally 24-7 uh, for that period that you're out there. But it's it's fun. It is just so much fun. And it's so peaceful just to see the world from a whole different perspective. And uh, you just feel very, very proud, but ins- insignificant at the same time, uh, because the ocean is a big place with a lot of power, and uh, you are a small player, you know, in this big, wide world. 
my trip to the Mariana, we were out there for 27 days on the boat. It was the most exciting and also the longest 20 day, 27 days of my life, probably. Our sampling was round the clock, 24 hours. You just have so much adrenaline because you're in a cool place. And like Brandy said, you really have to learn how to go with the flow. Sometimes you think you have everything planned out and something doesn't work for you. And you have to figure out either how to move on or how to fix it. And you only have what you have on the ship with you. You can't magic a piece of equipment to you to make sure something works. And then also sometimes you find something that you hadn't intended you wanted to sample and then you have to find a way to sample it. Like for instance, we had some really cool biofilm growing on one of our corks, which was the straw-like structure that Brandy talked about earlier. And we wanted to sample it because it was really cool, but it was on kind of a a PVC pipe kind of thing. And we had to be careful about um, our, our method of sampling affecting the structure. So we sent a toilet brush down and the ROV collected it in its claws and it just scrubbed the side of this pole with the toilet brush and sent it back up. And like, you have to be able to think of innovative things like that. I always prepare my students for the what ifs, the the incidentals. So we have, you know, I tell everyone, you know, bring duct tape, bring electrical tape, bring zip ties. When I hire students, I want to hire them for, you know, their creativity and for their adaptability as much as I hire for book knowledge. Book knowledge can come. Common sense and creativity and and uh, flexibility. Those make a scientist, I think, much more than, you know, even what is, you know, written in a textbook. I kind of can't help but wonder, how did we get here? (laughs) For both of you, this is a pretty, like, I would say, niche area, right? So, like, how did we, how did we get here? You know, that, uh, that um, meme that you sometimes see, yeah, the way that we think science goes from point A to point B and the reality of it is that it's a circuitous path that goes through loops and, and turns and, you know, and then you get there. Uh, well, I would venture to say that uh, career trajectories are exactly the same way. Uh, for me, I started out as pre-med and I decided that I didn't want to work on humans. So I took a geology class and I took the geology class because it offered a field trip to the Grand Canyon and I thought that would be great. And I just fell in love with uh, geology, with the earth. I've always been a, a, a bit of an environmentalist, uh, even back into my elementary school days, you know, save the planet, save the earth. It wasn't until after college when I first became uh, a consultant before I even, you know, went back to graduate school. I became an environmental consultant and I was uh, introduced to the world of bioremediation. In other words, using microbes to clean up our uh, our planet to clean up our, our spills, our messes, our accidents. And uh, it combined the interesting parts of, you know, microbiology from uh, that I enjoyed in the pre-med days to the soil, the environment uh, that uh, I came to love in my geology undergraduate degree. Bioremediation uh, was just my first introduction to microbes not only existing, but also manipulating and changing their environment. 
And from there, uh, from my consulting days, I met some PhD um, researchers uh, that were on various projects uh, that I was working on as a as a, a staff scientist and a staff geologist. And they uh, actually told me how to go to graduate school, which is not something that I learned or came by naturally. In other words, I applied for graduate school once and I got rejected. And I got rejected because I just applied just the same way you would as an undergraduate. But I never reached out to an individual researcher and said, hey, I like what you do. I want to be in your lab. Do you have room for me? I reapplied for graduate school and uh, I reached out to those that uh, had, you know, interests uh, in both microbes and uh, biogeochemistry. And, uh, and then the fit was natural from there. You know, it didn't have a rejection anymore. I had, you know, resounding acceptances. And so uh, that's where I started to, you know, um, really explore microbes in the environment. And from there, I just kept moving further and further offshore, inland lakes to rivers to offshore, you know, to onshore to offshore, and then uh, just going deeper and deeper uh, until I found myself uh, in extreme environments. I had a very different um, experience getting to academia than Brandy did. I definitely thought I was going to be a professional musician when I grew up. Oh, okay. Um, I played piano since I was eight, grew up in a very musical family. My dad played the cello. My mom plays the guitar and she's a vocal teacher. I took every music class I possibly could in high school um, and then went to college and pursued my future in music and then realized that maybe I wanted piano to be a hobby and not a career. So then I kind of thought to myself, let's regroup. From there, I went back to community college and I decided maybe I was interested in human health. So I took some pre-med prerequisites and the very first one that I took was a introductory to microbiology class. I just loved it. I realized that microbes were just so intriguing and all of them are so different and you can learn so much from them. So I went on to my four-year institution and um, as a microbiology major. And in order to graduate, you have to do research experience for that program. And so I reached out to some researchers at the university and found a lab that was doing geomicrobiology and did my first semester there. And I stayed there for the last two years of my undergrad and just loved it. And from there, I was like, well, maybe I am interested in grad school for environmental science and kind of stepped away during my master's um, from microbial research into chemical nutrient cycling in coastal wetlands. From there, I graduated and I took a break from academia and went to work in industry for a little while. And then I get a phone call out of the blue from Brandy. And um, she's like, I have this project that I think you'd be really interested in which happened to be this Mariana project. And that was kind of my squiggly route to getting here. It's a small world. Yeah. It really is. Uh, so I know her former you know, undergraduate advisor, geomicrobiologists in extreme environments is a mm -hmm. very small 
world. And uh, also when you see talent, like uh, we saw in Lydia, you don't let that go. You know, you don't uh, let that pass you by, at least without uh, making sure that their goals and their, that they're Mm -hmm. where they need to be, you know? And uh, so hence the phone call to Lydia. And uh, I said, um, are you still interested in in pursuing, you know, a PhD? Because we've got this, you know, we've got this grant that's funded and uh, I think you'd be perfect for it. Yeah, you don't you don't let that slip through your fingers. That gave me the warm fuzzies. I now I now want to bring us to our first ever Cassie's Career Corner Challenge. So congratulations, you guys are the first participants. I'm a little nervous, isn't that great? I know. Sum up for us and our listeners in five words or less your field. You're asking a scientist to be uh, short winded. <laughs> I have to think about this. <laughs> I'm like over like- here counting words. <laughs> Once we think of our words, we can say them all together as if uh, this was recorded right for the first time. Microbial survivability. Survivability, adaptability. Um, microbial survivability yeah, and extreme environment. There you see. Look at that. Teamwork makes a dream work. Well done, you. I have no prizes for you, but consider yourselves blessed. Um, okay. I like to do this every episode because we love consistency. I want to hear from both of you, please your best or proudest lab moment or research moment, what have you, and also your biggest oops or oh no. There were a few very proud moments. Uh, okay. The toilet brush was definitely a the proud toilet moment. Brush. Mm-hmm. Um, another proud moment would be we were having some problems with uh, our sampling method for fluids, and I came up with an idea to send a really long tube down into that straw, and we got very pristine samples from that and I was very proud of that idea because we kind of thought at one point that some of our samples were awash. Um, Sometimes the simplest solutions are the best solutions so that one was a really proud moment as well. Uh, My biggest oops. I haven't had any that were super detrimental yet. Okay. (laughs) Knock on wood. Well that's good yeah. (laughs) I think probably my biggest oops was one time I was mixing um, some really high concentration sodium hydroxide and didn't know that it created a very exothermic reaction (laughs) when you mix it all together. And luckily I was doing this under a hood and I was wearing all my proper PPE, but I mixed it all in and the exothermic reaction bubbled and it exploded in the hood and just shot high concentration sodium hydroxide everywhere. And now I know that you add it in a little bit at a time and you mix it very slowly. Otherwise, it is bad news bears. The funny thing is that we have that exact same story, that we both did that exact same thing, you know, during our, you know, early career stages. We've we joked about that before. We learned the same lesson, uh, not together, <laughs> obviously, you know, separated by, uh, you know, maybe 15 years probably, but uh, that I did the same thing with the sodium hydroxide, you know, created a a pressurized, you know, cap, you know, of a, a bubble that uh, underneath it start to swirl it and it, you know, explodes. My proudest moment uh, absolutely comes when I graduate students or uh, watch the students uh, accomplish something big that was, you know, very challenging or overcoming obstacles that might be in the lab or their challenges, you know, out at sea or uh, just in general, you know, once they publish, you know, that in of itself can be, you know, a challenge in, in uh, overcoming, you know, your writing fears or 
uh, your writing, you know, blocks, and of course, graduating and, you know, hitting those milestone milestones. So students are my proudest moment overall. Uh, absolutely. Uh, far, you know, beyond discoveries or naming organisms or anything like that. Brandy and, and Lydia, thank you so much for joining us here on Absolute Genius. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. That was Dr. Brandy Keel Reese and Lydia Hayes Guastea from the Dauphin Island Sea Lab at the University of South Alabama. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of Absolute Genius. Stay curious, and we'll see you next time. I'm going to do the whole Aspire ad in that voice. Being a scientist <laughs> has its perks. Okay. Uh, Are we feeling aspirational? Are we ready? Let's do it.